This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sexual assault, violence, and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. 34-year-old Melanie Cooper shivered as she sat on a metal chair in the small white interrogation room. Mark Mudgett, a tall, muscular New Hampshire police sergeant, leaned in close. In a soft voice, he asked what she remembered about November 9, 1985. Though it had been nearly two decades, Melanie knew exactly where she was that day, back when her last name was still Paquette. So much had changed since then. She'd gotten married, moved to Idaho, had five beautiful children. She thought of their bright, beautiful faces and a knot formed in her throat. If she told the truth, she might never see them again. She looked down to avoid Sergeant Mudgett's gaze, wishing she could somehow fold in on herself and disappear. It was all over. 20 years of hiding. She was tired of living with this terrible secret festering inside of her. Melanie clasped her hands, bowed her head, and asked God for forgiveness. Then, she looked at Sergeant Mudgett with tears in her eyes and said, Okay, I'm ready to tell you what happened. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how the passions of our relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, 
just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Last week, we discussed 15-year-old Melanie Paquette's bond with her friend and teammate, 17-year-old Eric Winterst. In the fall of 1985, Melanie confided in Eric that her adoptive father, Danny Paquette, had sexually abused her. Though she'd escaped the abuse, she worried that Danny would find her in their New Hampshire town and hurt her again. To protect his friend, Eric took matters into his own hands. This week, we'll discuss the death of 36-year-old Danny Paquette, the fallout of the crime, and law enforcement's 20-year search for the truth. On the morning of November 9, 1985, Eric Dwindhurst saw Danny Paquette for the first time through the sight of his Ruger 77 rifle. His finger twitched on the trigger, but he hesitated to fire. He was hidden in the trees over 300 yards from where Danny was working outside his garage. If he was really going to kill Danny, his aim had to be perfect. Meanwhile, 15-year-old Melanie Paquette stood several hundred feet away, hiding nervously behind a tree. As Eric aimed at her adoptive father, she didn't want to watch. As she waited for the sound of the gunshot, Melanie thought one last time about stopping Eric. She wasn't really sure she wanted Danny dead, but she didn't exactly want to save him either. For years, Danny had molested her, physically abused her mother, and emotionally terrorized her little sisters. She was terrified of what might happen if he found out she was living in New Hampshire again, just 15 minutes away from his home. Both Eric and Melanie thought that killing Danny would be just. They expected his death to bring them peace. But for many, seeking revenge only exacerbates their anxiety. Before I continue with the psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In an article published through the Association for Psychological Science, Eric Jaffe details the disastrous psychological consequences of revenge. He writes, Behavioral scientists have observed that instead of quenching hostility, revenge can prolong the unpleasantness of the original offense. This effect is compounded when the person seeking revenge goes outside of ethical boundaries to do so. Unfortunately, it wouldn't be until later that Eric and Melanie would realize the lifelong psychological consequences of their actions. In the moment, Eric stayed calm as he watched Danny working. Danny was welding a license plate onto a bulldozer while his friend, Richard Duarte, fixed up a 1954 Ford in the garage. A boy named Court Burton stood off to the side, watching the men work. Court never said much, but seemed to have developed a bond with Danny even though he was half the man's age. The relationship didn't surprise Richard, who knew Danny had a penchant for befriending children. At one point, Danny even told Richard he was dating a girl in the neighborhood who couldn't have been more than 15. 
Richard tried his best to mind his own business. Court never bothered him. That morning, after he finished tinkering with the Ford, Richard had Court help him tidy up Danny's garage. Eric watched from the trees as Richard and Court worked in silence in the garage. Finally, he decided the moment was right. There was no going back now. He took a breath and squeezed the trigger. The loud crack shocked Court and Richard. Court instinctively ducked, while Richard dropped a full container of wrenches on the ground. Richard ran out of the garage with Court close behind. They saw Danny's helmet rolling across the grass first. Behind the bulldozer Danny had been working on, they could still hear the sound of his welding torch humming. As they got closer, they found Danny Paquette lying belly up on the pavement. His arms were outstretched and his mouth hung wide open. Richard rushed to his friend's side. At first, he thought Danny must have somehow electrocuted himself with the welding torch. There was no sign of any blood, so he had no idea Danny had been shot. Because 911 responders weren't available in rural Hooksit, Richard yelled for court to call the local fire rescue. Then he began pumping Danny's chest in a futile attempt to bring his friend back to life. As a Hooksit fire rescue spoke to a frantic court Burton on the phone, 17-year-old Eric Windhurst sprinted through the woods. He could feel the rifle bouncing against his hip, the barrel still warm. He barely managed to stop when he found 15-year-old Melanie Paquette standing a few hundred feet away. His body buzzed with adrenaline as he ushered her to the car. Melanie rushed to follow him, asking Eric breathlessly if he really did it. He didn't answer. The two raced through the trees back to Eric's Volkswagen Rabbit. He had parked the vehicle behind some bushes and caked the license plates with mud, but it certainly hadn't been well hidden. Now that the deed was done, he suddenly felt stupid and vulnerable. When Melanie jumped into the passenger seat, he grabbed her by the back of the neck and pushed her down to the floor to hide. Eric shoved the key into the ignition and sped down the main road leading out of Danny's neighborhood. He gripped the steering wheel so hard, his knuckles turned stark white. No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't seem to catch his breath. Once they were safely out of the neighborhood, he relaxed a little bit. He told himself it was all over. He'd taken care of the problem. Melanie wouldn't have to live in fear anymore. For that, at least, he was glad. But he could tell Melanie's anxiety hadn't totally evaporated. Instead, it mutated, enveloping him as well. Danny wasn't a threat anymore, but now both he and Melanie were terrified of getting caught. Eric tried to think about something else, but his mind was reeling. Suddenly, he was worried about the crime scene. He didn't know anything about police investigations. He stayed far away from Danny, so he knew there would be no fingerprints or footprints to place him at the scene. But the bullet might still be in Danny's chest. He was pretty sure the police could connect the bullet to a gun. He'd have to destroy his dad's rifle. But how? He couldn't think straight. He jumped from one subject to another. 
worrying that he'd forgotten something important and accidentally left evidence behind. He felt his face grow hot and tears well up. He killed a man. You don't just kill a man and get away with it. Melanie snapped him out of his daze. She looked up at him from the floorboard and asked him again, did he do it? She already knew the answer. Eric nodded, tears running down his face. He wished he hadn't. Eric and Melanie made their way straight home after the shooting and stayed away from each other for the rest of the day. Meanwhile, fire rescue arrived at the scene of the crime. They were too late. Danny Paquette was beyond saving. Like Richard, first responders initially thought Danny had died of electrocution or cardiac arrest. But when they moved the body, they discovered a puddle of blood underneath him. They called the Hooksett Police Department to investigate. The department was tiny. There were only about a half dozen officers on the force, and nearly all of them showed up to Danny's that day. By then, it was obvious that Danny had been shot, though the bullet was mysteriously missing. The bigger problem was determining whether his death was a murder or just an accident. November 9th was the first day of hunting season. Some officers believed a stray bullet was the most likely culprit. However, Danny was shot directly through the heart. If it had really been an accident, Danny had been extremely unlucky. On the other hand, from where investigators stood outside Danny's garage, the edge of the woods was almost 300 yards away. They decided that anyone who could shoot a man dead from that far must have been the best shot in New Hampshire. With what little evidence they had, investigators compiled a list of possible suspects. It was easier said than done because Danny Paquette had a lot of enemies. Every interview they conducted led to exponentially more suspects. It could have been one of Danny's many ex-girlfriends or their current boyfriends. It might have been one of the countless men he tussled with at bars in and around Hookset. There were rumors that Danny was a cocaine user. Maybe he was killed by a dealer looking for payment. It even might have been a case of mistaken identity. After all, Danny's brother, Victor, looked exactly like him at a distance, and he had even more enemies than Danny. On top of it all, no one could entirely discredit the stray bullet theory. Police discovered that on the morning of November 9th, a group of hunters were shooting bottles in a sand pit near Danny's home. As unlikely as it was, they couldn't rule out the possibility that one of their bullets had somehow been responsible. The next day brought a little bit of clarity to the case, but not much. By testing possible trajectories, police deduced that the fatal bullet had been fired from the north. While this helped them narrow down the source of the shot, it didn't rule out any theories. The hunters they'd previously interviewed had been shooting bottles from that exact direction. To figure out anything concrete, investigators needed to find the murder weapon. Unfortunately for them, Eric disposed of the rifle the night after he killed Danny Paquette. It's unclear exactly how he got rid of the gun, but it seems Eric asked his older brother Trapper for help destroying it. Afterward, he and Trapper rarely spoke of the incident. 
Eric kept his distance from Melanie in the days following Danny's death as well, while police continued to make slow progress in their investigation. Their next break came a few days after the shooting, when authorities found an unlikely potential lead. On the day of Danny's death, around 11 a.m., a hooksick couple had floated over the town in a hot air balloon, videotaping their view of the city from above. Investigators painstakingly reviewed the footage frame by frame, hoping it would give them a glimpse of the culprit. But it turned out to be another disappointment. They couldn't see anyone who might have shot Danny in the video. What they really needed was the phantom bullet. But despite multiple searches of the scene, it seemed to have disappeared. It was finally discovered on November 12th, three days following the shooting. After service to some homes in Danny's neighborhood were interrupted over the weekend, a repairman found a hole in the telephone line closest to Danny's house. He checked inside and uncovered the missing bullet. Investigators were optimistic after the discovery, but it was far from a break in the case. There were still too many possibilities, no gun and no real leads. They had no choice but to track down every possible suspect. At the end of the month, police even began looking into Denise Messier, Danny's ex-wife, and her daughter, Melanie Paquette. When we return, Hooksit police learn about 15-year-old Melanie Paquette's motive for murder. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. On November 9, 1985, 15-year-old Melanie Paquette conspired with 17-year-old Eric Windhurst to kill her adoptive father. For weeks, police in Hooks at New Hampshire were at a loss as they investigated the crime. They'd found the bullet that pierced 36-year-old Danny Paquette's heart, but not much else. Their list of suspects was long and their clues were few. Near the end of November, investigators narrowed in on Denise Messier, Danny's ex-wife. She was living in Wasilla, Alaska with two of her daughters, but her oldest child, 15-year-old Melanie, had moved back to New Hampshire the previous year. Melanie was certainly not a prime suspect. Although Denise informed Hooksit police about the sexual abuse Melanie had endured at Danny's hand, investigators didn't think the shy, short-haired girl capable of murder. They questioned her as a matter of procedure. Melanie coolly told investigators the story she'd rehearsed. She claimed that at the time of Danny's death, she'd been at the high school girls' field hockey championship game with her friend, Eric Windhurst. The game was held at Plymouth State College, nearly an hour's drive away from Hooksit. Investigators found Melanie's story so convincing that they didn't check her story against Eric's until New Year's Eve of 1985, more than a month later. Eric corroborated Melanie's alibi, and officers didn't think anything more of it. 
Many still believe Danny's death was a result of a freak hunting accident, and eventually, the case went cold. But Eric Windhurst felt guilt strangling him like a python. His secret was poisoning him, and he had to let it out. He kept to himself in the weeks immediately following the murder. But after police questioned him and left him alone, he couldn't keep his mouth shut. Over the course of the next year, Eric regularly went to local parties, got drunk, and admitted to having shot Danny Paquette. He drank so heavily that his friends worried for his health. It's possible that Eric was using alcohol to self-medicate and ease his guilt and intense anxiety about what he'd done. In one study published in the Journal of Abnormal Psychology, researchers found that nervousness was the only negative mood state to predict increases in alcohol consumption and confirm that alcohol consumption preceded lower levels of nervousness. Eric constantly worried he would be sent to prison. These feelings likely led him to turn to alcohol for solace. The more he drank, the less he worried which then prompted him to share his secret with others. This led to many drunken confessions throughout the mid-80s. Melanie Paquette never attended a party with Eric. In fact, after the murder, the two hardly spoke at all. Melanie knew that rumors were spreading that Eric shot Danny. In her mind, the less friendly they seemed, the better. At first, they avoided each other to dampen any suspicion. But as time went on, they drifted further apart. The following year, Melanie moved back to Alaska and Eric joined the army. They went on to live completely separate lives. Despite Melanie's precautions by most accounts, the fact that Eric Windhurst murdered Danny Paquette was an open secret in the small New Hampshire town. When pressed on the subject years later, a woman who had heard one of Eric's drunken confessions said she never doubted that he did it. She said, anyone who knows Eric knows he's capable of this. She never gave a reason for not going to the police. She likely kept quiet for the same reason most people did. No one was too sorry that Danny Paquette was gone. Hookset was a small community and almost everyone knew Danny Paquette, either personally or by association. Before his death, Danny had a spotty reputation to say the least. His habit of preying on girls as young as 15 wasn't lost on anybody. Many people saw Eric's act in the same terms that he and Melanie had at first. They considered it almost heroic. And there were others who just didn't believe Eric's drunken rambling. He was the captain of the soccer team, a popular guy who was known to be a big talker. Those who didn't know him well didn't put much stock into his words. But seven years after Danny Paquette's death, Eric's confessions finally caught up with him. In 1992, the Hooksett Police Department received two anonymous letters, both of which suggested Eric Winthurst and Melanie Paquette had murdered Danny. One of the letters was full of messy grammatical mistakes, but the other letter said in clear English, it is common knowledge in Hopkinton that a young man named Eric Windhurst shot Paquette with his father's rifle to avenge abuse to Paquette's daughter, a friend of Windhurst. I am dumbfounded as to why the case is still unsolved. It's a bad example to the many young people who know the facts about this murder. 
They look at it as a justified murder because of the alleged abuse. This is not healthy. The letter was signed from a former neighbor. After receiving the letter, Hooksett police contacted Melanie Paquette, now 22-year-old Melanie Cooper, a married mother living in California. Detectives asked to schedule an interview, but Melanie insisted that because her husband worked and she had young children, she wasn't available to answer their questions. To accommodate her, Sergeant Roland Lammy agreed to send Melanie a questionnaire via mail. Later, officers would admit that this was very out of the ordinary and an extremely ineffective way to conduct an interrogation. Naturally, Melanie maintained her previous alibi when filling out the questionnaire. Police had no evidence to support the anonymous letters they received and ultimately dismissed them as hearsay. The case went cold once again. Most seemed content to leave it that way, but Victor Paquette, Danny's older brother, called hooks at police every year on the anniversary of his death, asking for updates. For 11 more years, officers had nothing to offer. Then in 2003, 18 years after Danny's death, the Hooksett police came under new management. Stephen Agrafiotis was just a rookie on the day Danny Paquette was shot, but he'd worked his way up to chief of police and was determined to solve the case. He hired a private investigator named Bill Shackford, who enlisted the help of Hooksett Forest Fire Warden, Harold Murray. Using new GPS technology, the men mapped the distance from Danny's garage to the sand pit where the group of hunters had been shooting bottles in 1985. They then overlaid the GPS data with a topographical map of the area. They discovered that in order for a bullet to reach Danny's home from the sand pit, it would have to have traveled a distance of over a mile. The stray bullet theory was officially disproved. Danny Paquette's death was not an accident. Hooksett police went back to their original list of suspects, many of whom had already been ruled out. The anonymous letters they received 11 years earlier continued to gnaw at them. Over the course of the next few years, they conducted interviews with Melanie and Eric's former classmates, many of whom reported hearing rumors that he had committed the murder. Moreover, people who knew Eric described him as a gun lover and an incredible shot. Investigators were closing on Eric, but everything they had was circumstantial. They still had no way to prove that the bullet they found at the scene of the crime came from one of his guns. The murder weapon had been destroyed long ago. If authorities wanted to prove Eric was guilty, they were going to have to get a confession. Of course, police had little faith Eric could be convinced to confess to them after so many years. So instead of focusing on him, they decided to chase his accomplice. After reviewing Eric and Melanie's statements from 1985, investigators discovered a hole in their alibis. At the time Melanie and Eric said they were returning from watching the field hockey match, the game hadn't even started yet. Either they both made the same mistake when reporting their whereabouts, or the two teenagers were hiding something together. Armed at last with a solid lead, on July 14, 2004, three Hooksett police sergeants traveled to Boise, Idaho. After a long trip, the men pulled up to a quaint brick home and rang the doorbell. 
34-year-old Melanie Cooper. Her brunette hair, now long past her shoulders, answered the door. When officers identified themselves and asked if she'd be willing to answer a few questions, her expression turned grave. Melanie surveyed the men on her porch carefully. She knew this moment would come. She lived every day still anxious over whether someone would show up the next week, the next month, the next year to ask questions. Now that the officers were standing in front of her, she almost felt relieved. She wondered how much they knew. For a moment, she thought about telling them no, turning around and bolting the door shut behind her. But she doubted they'd take no for an answer. These officers had come halfway across the country to question her. They knew her alibi was bunk. They knew what she and Eric had done, and there was no way to escape it. Suddenly, decades of tension fell out of Melanie's shoulders. For the first time in almost 20 years, she finally felt herself relax. The gig was up. She could breathe. She told the officers, sure, she'd answer their questions. The sergeants took Melanie to an interrogation room at a local Idaho police station. As soon as they told her they would be using a polygraph test to corroborate her story, Melanie broke. She asked the officers for a moment alone to pray. Afterward, she told them everything that happened between them on the day of Danny's death. She confessed that it had been Eric who suggested killing Danny and claimed that she never believed he would actually pull the trigger. After taking down Melanie's statement, officers enlisted her help to get a confession out of Eric Windhurst. They told her that if she cooperated in a sting operation, her chances of serving jail time as an accessory to the murder would be slim to none. Melanie agreed. She watched apprehensively as the officer set up a tape to record every sound in the small interrogation room. The police had trouble finding a number that worked, so they called her in the next day to avoid suspicion. She dialed Eric Windhurst's number. Eric, now 36 years old, picked up almost immediately but didn't recognize Melanie's voice at first. When she told him who she was, his voice brightened. He was pleasantly surprised to hear from an old friend, but Danny's excitement dulled when Melanie told him the reason she was calling. She said there were police officers at her door asking about Danny Paquette and that she didn't know what to do. Eric suggested Melanie stick to the story they had agreed on. They had been at the girls' field hockey championship on the morning of November 9th, 1985, and that was it. The officers passed Melanie notes with questions and phrases meant to coax a confession from Eric. But no matter how shrewdly she tried to trick him into owning up, Eric kept his statements vague and defensive. He told Melanie she should get a lawyer. She asked him what she would tell an attorney. He said, that we went to the field hockey game and that's it. You don't remember anything else, too long ago. Just stick with that. When she asked him what would happen if she told a lawyer the truth, Danny replied, well, then we go to jail. Even after hours of conversation, 
police couldn't get an open admission of guilt from Eric Windhurst, but they did have a collection of suspiciously vague statements and a long list of people who had been close to Eric in high school. Investigators went back to Hooksit and began yet another round of interviews with Eric and Melanie's old friends. Every person they interviewed reported having been told, either by Eric or by someone close to him, that he was responsible for shooting Danny Paquette. Police also visited the home of Eric's older brother, Trapper Windhurst, where they spoke to Trapper's wife, Martha. She admitted that 12 years earlier, she had sent the anonymous letter signed a former neighbor to Hooksit police. She had heard Eric's confession firsthand when he came to Tapper asking for help destroying the murder weapon in 1985. Nearly 20 years after Danny Paquette's death, investigators finally had enough evidence to indict the killer. When we return, Eric goes to trial for murder. Now, back to the story. By December 14, 2005, Hooksit police, with the help of 35-year-old Melanie Cooper, had gathered enough evidence to solve the 1985 murder of Danny Paquette. That morning, they went out searching for 37-year-old Eric Windhurst. After several moves back and forth from New Hampshire to Colorado, Eric had once again settled down near Hooksit. He worked as a carpenter and lived in a small cabin on Kimball Lake. That day, Investigators pulled up to a construction site where Eric was hanging siding on the front of a house. When he saw the police exiting their vehicles, Eric took off his tool belt and went with them willingly. At the time, Eric's friend, Suzanne Bowman, said, Eric lived his life as if someone was gonna find out at every moment. It's haunted him, it's tormented him. He was arrested, he actually felt relieved. Eric had been living in fear for years. When he was finally caught, his anxiety vanished. In a 1992 study, researcher Dr. Eric Stice likened guilt to cognitive dissonance, the psychological distress one experiences when their beliefs, ideals, or values are at odds with their actions. Following a small experiment conducted with 45 undergraduate students, Stice found that confession does relieve dissonance. In other words, telling the truth releases, or at least lessens, psychological distress caused by lying. Although Eric still felt ashamed of the murder, his secret was finally out, which was a relief. To avoid life in prison, Eric pleaded guilty to second-degree murder. On the day of his sentencing, Eric was grateful he didn't have to fight to win over a jury. Surprisingly, he didn't find himself harboring any anger towards Melanie. He was almost glad she told police the truth because he knew he never would have come forward himself. He didn't want to go to prison. The idea terrified him. But he also knew that whether he spent the rest of his life in prison or not, he would never fully be rid of the shame and regret he felt for what he'd done. On August 21, 2006, 38-year-old Eric Windhurst was sentenced to 15 to 36 years in prison with the possibility of parole. Before he left the courtroom, he turned to Victor Paquette, who had waited 21 years to bring his brother's killers to justice. Eric told Victor how deeply sorry he was for what he'd done. 
Victor remained stone-faced. But even after Eric's conviction, the debate over Danny Paquette's death raged on. As news about the murder spread, people took sides, arguing either that the murder was justified on account of Danny's abusive behavior, or that Eric's attempt at vigilante justice set a dangerous precedent. The case, and more importantly, the complicated moral questions it raised, was featured on an episode of On the Case with Paula Zahn. During the show, Jeff Strelzen, the senior assistant attorney general of New Hampshire at the time, says, there were certainly members of the public who voiced their opinion that Eric Windhurst shouldn't be prosecuted for what he did. But our response to that was that he didn't get to play judge, jury, and executioner. For people in New Hampshire and beyond, the case became a vehicle for debate surrounding the right to due process, when and if a crime can be justified, and how adults should be tried for crimes committed as minors. Nothing about the Danny Paquette case was clear-cut, including just how much of a role Melanie had really played in her adoptive father's murder. In December of 2006, 36-year-old Melanie attended her own trial. She felt certain that since she'd been so cooperative in helping police arrest Eric, she wouldn't be sentenced to anything more than probation or community service. Though there was no evidence that Melanie had played a significant role in the actual crime, the judge believed she should still be charged as an accessory to murder. Without Melanie's help, he said, there was no way Eric could have killed Danny Paquette. Eric didn't even know where Danny lived before Melanie told him. In the end, Melanie was sentenced to 15 months in prison. Before she went to jail, she told Danny's family, I'm very sorry that you've suffered all these years. I know it's hard for you to understand but I didn't ask for Danny to be killed. Danny has done a lot of things to me, but he didn't deserve to die that way. Melanie Cooper was released in early 2008 and now works as an advocate for prison reform. She has declined to be interviewed about her adoptive father's murder and has not spoken to Eric Winter since his arrest. In an interview in 2010, Eric maintained that he killed Danny in an effort to keep Melanie safe. He said as an adult, he realized that he didn't do the right thing, but as a teenager, he felt like he did. In the moment, he said, killing Danny Paquette felt like a selfless act. Eric remains incarcerated today. He will have served his minimum sentence on December 13, 2020. Though the moral question behind the death of Danny Paquette will likely continue to be debated, for the moment, it seems justice was served. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. 
Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs.